Hello, and welcome to the To The Stars podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. The To The Stars podcast has been created to write a forum for science fiction and science as it comes together. Owen Hubbard wrote in Battlefield Earth that science fiction was a herald of possibility. And we're just proving that out with this, uh, this podcast. Today we have a very special guest. You've heard him on the Rise of the Future podcast a few times. He's best known amongst that community as the person behind the Topanga Canyon story. But today we're very interested in him because he's also very notable in the UFO community as a ufologist. And he just came out with a book, which we'll be talking about as well, as well called Schoolyard UFO Encounters. Please welcome Mr. Preston Dennett. Hey. Hi, John. How are you doing? Doing good. This is great because this, this is a, a whole different form than what we've done before with Writers of the Future, being able to talk about science fiction, science fact, and now we're, we're broaching on the subject that um, I know you're very knowledgeable in, and um, so let's just get right into it. Um, this is kind of like the idea of um, Ufology 101, uh, just a basic overview on that. So how did you get into it to begin with yourself? Uh, non-voluntarily, I can tell you that. I wanted to be a science fiction writer, <laughs> and I really tried, but I kind of fell into it accidentally. I heard a report on the news. I uh-huh. uh, didn't believe it for a second about a sighting over Alaska back in 1986. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this pilot is out of his mind. He's on drugs. He's crazy. He's lying. There's just no way he saw a UFO because I would have heard, you know, this wasn't taught in schools. Right. Uh, this is not in textbooks. Uh, people weren't taking it seriously, so I just didn't believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but had enough curiosity to ask around. Found out my brother had seen a UFO. Uh, my sister-in-law. I had a friend who had missing time. I brought it up at work. That was a huge mistake. <laughs> a bunch of them saw UFOs yeah. as well. So I was, you know, really hit home for me, literally. Right. I'm finding out a lot of people I knew were having encounters. And it kept it secret from me. I was kind of scandalized, really, Mm because these were people I loved and trusted. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me this? I'm like, well, you wouldn't have believed me, would you? And I'm like, well, you're right about that. Right. So I kind of like thought, okay, maybe this is real. I'm going to go to the library and disprove them. I'm going to go to the bookstores and found out, actually, that there is a lot of evidence to support this. Uh, People have been studying it for decades. It's Mm -hmm. taken very seriously at high levels of government. There's an apparent cover-up. So this really set my life on a left turn in the twilight zone and uh, shook me up pretty bad. It was not good news as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I had had several conversations before with uh, Jim Mars, who I used to work with a lot before he passed a few years ago. And he's very well known in in this community um, someone very knowledgeable about it and knew lots of he'd been researching for some time and has had, you know, mainstream books on the subject. So what I've got here is this little write-up that I did. It's, it's actually on um, battlefieldearth.com on the blog. There's a, a blog that was written that um, talked about uh, UFOs, friend or foe, and... The uh, opening I have on is big government maintains that there are no such things as intelligent alien life forms while evidence to the contrary abounds. There were 2,625 reported UFO sightings in 2000, 3,069 reported sightings in 2010, and 4,881 in 2017, 
all listed with the National UFO Reporting Center. So based on that, there's, um, there's some more of the more famous encounters. And I think something that everybody's heard about is the June 1947 um, the private pilot Kenneth Arnold makes the first post-war UFO sighting at Mount Rainier in Washington State. What can you do? What can you say about that particular incident? Yeah, that was really the incident that started it all. UFOs were not really popular mm -hmm. or, or well known, really at all. Uh, but starting in 1947, this was like July. Uh, with that sighting, uh, it was well publicized. It kind of coined the term flying saucers mm -hmm. and opened the floodgates for a lot of other people who were seeing this stuff. Uh, but prior to that, there was not a lot of UFO activity. Um, something happened yeah. um, during that time. A lot of researchers think it coincides with the atomic age. And uh, that seems to be one of the things that may have drawn them here in large numbers. Right. But for whatever reason, yeah, starting in 1947, uh, UFOs started visiting uh, in much larger numbers than they had been previously. Yeah, and a month after that one there is the very, very famous Roswell incident. Right. Uh, that's the best-known UFO crash, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, is probably not the only one. Correct, yeah. Uh, as it turns out, but it's very well verified. There's some 100, 200, 300 witnesses who've been interviewed by various researchers. Gosh, mm -hmm. there's got to be by. 50 books written on that incident alone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's just one, actually, of many UFO crash retrievals that have taken place across the U.S. and, for that matter, the world. Good. And then there was all moving forward then to July 52. And there's, on this blog, it actually has the video footage of it, too. Over a period of two weeks, UFOs were sighted by air traffic controllers at Washington National Airport. Right. Incredible. That was amazing, just the footage that they were able to get on it. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times people have asked me, well, why don't they land on the White House lawn? Well, they practically did. Yeah. They were hovering right over there. They were seen by pilots, air tra traffic controllers, people on the ground. This was a pretty widely viewed sighting, which the government did actually say was probably just flights from, caused by a temperature inversion, ultimately was their <laughs> explanation. Right. Uh, which, you know, the witnesses who were there sort of refute that because this did appear on radar. Yeah. Um, and uh, we did scramble planes after them, couldn't catch them. Uh, but you can see why they didn't land because we reacted in kind of a hostile way. That begs, and we'll go back onto this timeline here, but um, our reaction to, at least military reaction, and you've, you see it in some of the other movies that Hollywood has done, but do you think that's going to be a problem or maintains itself as a problem where you know, you've got like the folks like yourself and Jim and some of the people that I know you speak with on the radio shows that you do and then the books, the authors that write the books, but then you've got the military side of it where it's shoot first, you know, if there's any, because we don't understand, anything can be taken as, a, um, as an act of hostility. So, right. because we don't understand anything, so it just results then in hostility begetting hostility. Yeah, I mean, it is a problem because we're dealing with an unknown. And from a military standpoint, from their viewpoint, um, you have to be concerned. Right. Because these things are hovering over our Air Force bases, you know, over our missile silos, over our nuclear power stations. Uh, so, yeah, you have to consider that a threat. I have real sympathy for our military, uh, especially when they first were confronted with this. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we're not seeing anything that's 
that I would say is super hostile uh, in terms of, you know, attacking us or trying right. to take over. So we don't see any real evidence that these guys are, you know, out for us. Uh, so I'm hopeful about that. Right. But on the other hand, yeah, we're still dealing with something we really know nothing about. So, gosh, I mean, I can see why our military is like, we have to really, you know, handle this very carefully. Right. So um, then in April 1966, the House Committee on Armed Services holds a hearing on UFO evidence with an evident purpose of suppressing the subject in a highly controlled presentation. And at that, that was, that was uh, originated by uh, Gerald Ford before he became, later became president. So any information on it or any, any particular comments on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was a great step forward, I think, with uh, officially confronting this subject. Mm -hmm. The first congressional investigation into UFOs really ever uh, which was sparked, by the way, by the Hillsdale, Michigan sightings, in which J. Allen Hynek, who was associated with Project Blue Book at the Air Force, right, right. he was the astronomical consultant. And uh, he kind of held a press conference after the Hillsdale, Michigan sightings. Uh, this is at a college where like 87 right. students saw this, uh, lights landing in the front of the college there. Uh, he called them swamp gas or that is a possible explanation. That caused a huge uproar, uh, which <laughs> led to the Air Force being criticized widely, which sort of sparked this congressional investigation. So yeah, I was pleased to see that it was being brought up in an official forum, but ultimately uh, it didn't have a, a real big effect. Right. Because uh, this subject is tightly controlled. The more you look into it, you, will, you can see that there is a cover-up. It's demonstrable. Right. Um, through documents released from the Freedom of Information Act, we know that all the intelligence agencies within our government have looked into this and are looking into this. Right. They take it very seriously. Sure. Sure. Okay. And then um, the um, you mentioned Project Blue Book, so that gets into December '69, um, where it has Project Blue Book is actually closed down. It had been going since 1952. And um, the whole purpose is, like you said, try to cover it up and just suppress it that it even exists. Right. Project Blue Book was, I think, started out as a legitimate effort to really figure out what's going on here. Mm -hmm. But as time went on, it became clear to, you know, even Blue Book insiders like J. Allen Hynek, uh, who defected at some <laughs> point, but to UFO researchers that this was not really a, the study that the government was uh, putting into UFOs. Uh, turns out that a lot of the major cases completely bypassed Blue Book. They were sent to the Air Technical Intelligence Command, any cases affecting national security. Right. And Blue Book was essentially a public relations exercise uh, to deal with the flood of reports coming in to the Air Force from the public. Mm. And uh, they wanted a way out. Right. And so what they ended up doing was funding another study, the Robertson Panel and the Condon Committee, uh, which took cases from Project Blue Book directly and studied them and came up with a negative conclusion uh, regarding the presence of UFOs and their possible effect on national security, saying, no, there's, we don't think there's anything to it and they're not a threat. And it was sort of a way to get out of this, uh, pub, you know, the UFO subject right. uh, as, as delicately as they could while still studying it behind the scenes. Got it, got it. Um, 
Now, there's... Um, in 1977, the first reported account of crop circles phenomenon reported in, in Alaska near the town of Eagle. In December 78, a full account of the discovery was published in an article entitled UFOs Terrorize Alaska. And this was the first of, and that was covered in um, um, a, a magazine, UFO magazine, and then it just went on from there. Many, much, many other such sightings. Is that still a thing that happens right now with the crop circles, or is that something that was happening back then and it's, it's kind of like moved on from now? Um, it was more popular back um, some years ago, the 80s and 90s. It's still going on. Uh -huh. uh, we don't know what's causing them. They're clearly not man-made, as some people have you know, claimed, uh, because Dr. Levengood, a researcher, has studied these thoroughly and was able to prove that these are not naturally formed uh, by studying the actual wheat stalks. You can see that they've been exposed to some sort of heat source. Little nodes in the plant cells are exploded. So you can tell when a, when a crop circle is genuine or not. Uh, but as far as their connection to UFOs, it's a loose connection. We, we're not even entirely sure where mm. these things are coming from or what they are. Right. But they're clearly uh, mathematical. They've got incredible symbols and symbology to them. They're right. beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. The crop circles is a definite mystery that is, I think, related to UFOs, but perhaps only peripherally. Right. Okay. In November '89, Linda Cort is it Cortile? Yeah. With her uh, in the in New York apartment, she saw the. Uh, I guess because she was abducted. Right. It's a very well-known abduction case. Um, abductions are much more popular, I think, than the public realizes, UFO abductions. Uh -huh. uh, most people don't talk about it, but there was a poll put out, the Roper poll in 1991, which found that one in 50 people have experienced this, uh, which is, gosh, millions of people. Wow. And her case is very unusual, the Linda Cortile case, because mm -hmm. this took place in the heart of New York City, uh, right at the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, a bunch of people saw this. Uh, Bud Hopkins, the main researcher for this incident, speculates that this was actually kind of a display that was meant to be seen, uh, which kind of makes sense because the vast majority of cases don't have outside witnesses, and this one has, you know, 10 or 20 or more. Yeah. So something very unusual about that particular case. You know, I looked into that, and there are other cases that are observed by outside witnesses. Geez, it's almost statistically insignificant <laughs> compared to the actual number of cases. Wow. Now, there's one that's, that was made very famous in a movie, um, Fire in the Sky, with um, the, um, in the White Mountains of the Arizona logger, Travis Walton. Have you yeah. met Travis? I have, yeah. yeah. We've sp spoken at conventions together. He's a great guy. It's a fantastic case. Yeah, I met him in contacting the desert a few years ago, yeah. Yeah, there, you know, Debunkers, skeptics have yeah. tried to knock this case down and have not been able to. Yeah, uh, there was you know five, six witnesses who saw Travis, you know, being struck by a beam of light from a UFO. They took off, scared of right. you know, scared that they were going to be taken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and went back shortly later, and he was gone and missing for five days. Uh, they rushed to the police. The police accused them of covering up a murder, mm -hmm. and this actually did start a murder investigation which went on for five days until Travis suddenly up. reappeared yeah. uh, with an incredible story of being taken on board. 
Uh, it's a yeah, it's a great case. There are many like it, but that's one of the ultimate ones, and probably the best case of that year for sure. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it was made very graphically real when Paramount made their movie. Yeah, the mo- I saw the movie. It was they did a great job. The onboard segment was a little bit fictionalized. Yeah. Uh, it's not exactly what happened, but it did sort of portray, I think, the strangeness and of it and yeah. the fear uh, and sort of the wild <laughs> aspect, the science fiction-y aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, because that was at a time before this subject was even, you know, as popular as it is today. It's much more mainstream right now. For uh, sure. Back then, no, there weren't a lot of people talking about it in the 70s even. No, that was definitely a science fiction movie back then. Yeah. Yeah. So now, um, in uh, August 93, a Titan IV rocket exploded less than a minute after takeoff at a height of 100,000 feet. Um, there has been various controversy over why that happened, but one of the things from um, that the Air Force Colonel Frank Sterling had said that there was, they observed a, uh, an unidentified object striking the Titan IV just before the explosion. So I know when I spoke with Jim Mars about it, he said there was also, it was a project in, with the payload and, and that Titan rocket for something else that, that the, what he said the UFOs were interested in making sure didn't happen. Do you have any information about that yourself or um, from your research? Nothing more that's actually out there in the public, but you know, I did look into UFOs and rockets, and, yeah, because that's certainly not an isolated incident. There's a number of cases very similar to that. Um, when we first started launching rockets, UFOs showed up, mm-hmm. and you know, if you look at what happened at White Sands, where's, which is really where we did a lot of our early rocket research, also right. China Lake in Southern California, uh, UFOs were very well known. In fact, Commander Laughlin, I believe, was his name. Uh, went public and said, oh, yeah, you know, we think that UFOs are monitoring our space program. And if you look at the various rocket launches throughout the years, uh, going all the way up to the moon shots, uh, you will see that there is a very big controversy about UFOs watching all of this take place. Uh, So I think it's pretty clear that they are monitoring our venturing into space Mm -hmm. and are very interested in our development of our technology yeah we had a um we've had many uh, astronauts speak at our writers of the future events over the years i'm not going to say any names because it was made very clear to him that if you talk about this public you will will arrest you <coughs> if you do your <laughs> he had photographs showing things um out there when he was you know in space that um are not wanted to be shown publicly. You know, there's definitely, I guess, a government concern that it'll cause a lot of wide-scale panic. I mean, on one hand, you've got the problem with government. There's, their job is to protect its citizenry. And it's already, as soon as we hit the nuclear age, they already established the fact they could no longer pre- you know, protect their citizens because all it takes is one crazy somebody with that and all of a sudden you just lost a whole city but now if you take something like a ufo and if they exist we have no technology with which to to deal with it you're automatically admitting that you can't protect your people like you're supposed to per your prime prime charter what you're supposed to do so there is a definite i'm sure concern of 
being able to survive themselves as a government if they can't protect their citizenry from UFOs, whatever these aliens might be. But in our recent time, you've got SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket was tested at Cape Canaveral and exploded. And Elon Musk said the rocket's explosion was the most difficult and complex failure we've ever had in 14 years. And he added his team was not ruling out the possibility of an unidentified flying object striking the Falcon 9. Can you discuss that anymore? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have first-hand information on the incident, uh, but I am aware of it. Yeah, because uh, there was that one video that showed you could see something shooting in. Yeah, it's really startling when you look into this. Uh -huh. uh, you know, pe people who don't believe in UFOs always ask me, well, have you done your homework? Because uh, if you're not willing to examine the evidence, it's not really fair to say that you don't believe in this. Because uh -huh. I think you'll get a real shock when you find out how much evidence there really is. Right. Uh, there's, of course, a lot of videos, but there's landing trace cases, you know, thousands of them. There's medical effects. There's all kinds of electromagnetic cases where they affect, you know, everything from car engines to TVs to radios to you name it. Right. And, uh, yeah, but they sometimes do seem to intervene directly with our ro rocket launches, mm -hmm. uh, which is very concerning, especially from a military standpoint. And I think... This is one of the reasons behind the UFO cover-up. Because like you said, I mean, we're dealing with a power that seems to be superior to us, technologically mm -hmm. at least. Sure, I mean, for sure. Right? I mean, these things yeah. can come down at very high speeds. They're perfectly silent. They're turning at right angles. They're disappearing. They're not always appearing on radar. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes they are. But whatever technology they have, it's far in advance of our own. And for the government to just say, oh, yeah, guess what? We're helpless. <laughs> well, they can't. They can't. Right. obviously can't do that. Because uh, there was the, what was that? In, was it in the 50s when there was the, um, the um, a lot of sightings and the Air Force had a, um, basically a standard standing order to, if you see these things, go ahead and attack and they were losing lots of, of the fighter jets. Yeah. They were being shot down, and then they changed their order saying, don't attack them, and then they stopped losing all the fighter jets. Right, which I think shows that the UFOs are not, you know, intending to hurt people. Yeah. They're usually only firing at, you know, planes or when we attack first. But yeah, we have lost pilots. Uh, I always wonder what happened to, uh, you know, there's, of course, the Mantell incident. And I believe that was... Gosh, Kentucky, where we, we lost a pilot. Mm -hmm. There was the Kinross incident. Uh, there's a number of incidents where pilots have disappeared after being vectored towards a UFO, uh, which is very concerning, right? Uh, to say the least. So, yeah, at some point they had to stop doing that because it wasn't effective and, and uh, I think it was just antagonizing a situation. Well, it's just a, um, a definite... You take a look at stuff, and if you if, see the things, if you already have the fixed idea that they don't exist, then anything's easy to explain or to just not see. Right. You know, but if you actually start opening your eyes to it and just looking, just seeing, and you start seeing, well, there's plenty of evidence out there to show that um, it is real. It oh, is yeah. something. And now you've got this book that came out that you just recently published called Schoolyard UFO Encounters. Um, tell me about this, and, what, and what's this about here? Yeah, that's my latest book. I've written a number of books on UFOs and found out that a number of schools have been targeted 
by UFOs. There's a very well-known case which occurred in Rua, Zimbabwe in 1994, where a UFO landed behind an elementary school, aerial elementary school, was seen by like 60 children. Mm -hmm. And uh, this thing, yeah, landed, humanoids came out. And it turns out this is not the only case like that. There was another yeah. very well-known case in Melbourne, Australia in 1966, uh -huh. uh, which was viewed by 300 students. Again, it landed right behind the school. This was seen by teachers as well. Right. Uh, and I started to look into it because I knew of another case in Opalaka, Florida, which is Crestview Elementary School, yeah. almost identical to what happened at Westall High School in Melbourne, Australia except it was an elementary school. That's really the only difference. Right. Some two, 300 kids saw this object land right next to the school. Teachers saw it as well. Uh, there was another case up in Wales at Broadhaven Elementary School. I thought, you know, is this a thing? What's going on here? Because I had a case here in California at uh, Stag Street Elementary School mm -hmm. where someone saw gray ETs right in front of the school. So I started to look into it. You know, I started scanning the files of uh, New Fork, the National UFO Reporting Center, MUFON, and other UFO organizations, and I got a real shock. You know, I've been researching this subject for many years, mm -hmm. and I thought it was past the point where I'd get shocked, but apparently not, because what I found was well over 100 cases, pretty much starting in 1950 onward, where schools are directly targeted. And these are not normal sightings. These are not like coincidental flybys where someone sees an anomalous light off in the distance for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. These things are coming right over the schools. They're circling around them. They're hovering. I'd say the average altitude is maybe 300 feet, 500. And 30% of these cases, they're actually landing. And some of these cases, humanoids are getting out. So it's a clear type of behavior. <laughs> Uh, where they are targeting and wanting to be noticed. Uh, wow. They're sh you know, hovering for, say, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, two hours. Mm -hmm. A few of these encounters take place over a period of days. There's photographic evidence. There's landing trace evidence. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here, but it's clear from their behavior that they are showing themselves off to large groups of children on purpose. Right. And I'm thinking, and I'm speculating here, but thinking that they're trying to sort of convince people of their presence in a way that's sort of quiet or a little bit sort of behind the scenes without going, say, directly over a concert or, you know, Hollywood Bowl or what have you. Right. They can sort of hover over a playground and the kids are not going to be believed. Often they aren't. Uh, but as they grow up, they know what they've seen. Yeah. And what it's sort of led to is almost a universal belief in UFOs, certainly among the younger generation. Yeah. Uh, like right now, I mean, if you talk to kids and millennials, uh, the idea of UFOs is absolutely accepted. It's something they all know about. Everyone knows what a UFO is, and the majority of them do believe in them. I think that um, that makes sense, and it's a good, it is a good way to... Um, now, is it their height that they're that? Because on your book cover here, they seem to, uh, the gray seem to be the same height as the kids. Is that, is that what they're normally like four feet, four and a half, five feet tall? Is that the, the common observed height? Yeah. It's not at all unusual for, well, there's a bunch of different types of ETs. Right. And I do be believe we're dealing with extraterrestrials here. Yeah. 
which I know how that sounds. Believe right. me, coming from being a skeptic, the idea of ETs was very hard for me to accept. Right. But we're sort of stuck with the evidence. And if you examine the evidence, that's absolutely the best theory. And people are reporting these figures coming out of these UFOs, these short humanoids. Mm-hmm. They're essentially humanoid, eyes, nose, mouth, Eye arms, pens, legs. Yeah. Uh, grays is the most common type. Mm-hmm. It's sort of pretty well known at this point within society, certainly right. here in the United States. Uh, but it's not the only type. Right. Uh, there's praying mantis type, which mm-hmm. I find kind of interesting. Uh, there's reptilian. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's all kinds of short humanoids, tall humanoids. Uh, but for me in my own research, at least 50%, uh, prob- probably a little more, 70% involves some variation of what we would call the grays. Right. Now, do you think that... Um because one thing that I used to talk about a lot with Jim Mars was uh, the book Battlefield Earth. He he loved that book and um, great book, yeah. Um, written by Owen Hubbard in 1982, and when it came out, it was still the idea of of um, aliens was. I mean, it had been ET prior to that, so it was um, very much benevolent. And in in this story here, it was the opposite where. Um, or not just to the opposite, but the the conquering race, the Cyclos, had sent a gas drone to wipe out, having picked up the, um, at that point, it still hadn't gotten in deep space, but in 67, when Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 were sent out, um, they they had a map of, of where Earth was in the solar system on a golden disk. Right, right. And um, with basically it was a map to find out where we were, and so it was picked up, and because gold was a rare element, gas drones were taken has been being mined for a thousand years so now you're a thousand years in the future do you think that um, science fiction books has had any impact on the acceptance or the ability to to um, assimilate that concept of of ufos oh for sure there's absolutely there's no question uh i think that it's a perfect intersection really Mm -hmm. of uh what, what what's happening here uh, aliens, I think, are probably the single most popular trope in science fiction. Yeah. And uh, so whether it's intentional or not or how this exa- exactly rolled out, I'm not sure because it kind of came at the same time. You know, science fiction and UFOs sort of rolled into this society hand in hand. Right. Uh, science fiction did come first, mm-hmm. uh, but absolutely, I think, did prepare people for what we're seeing today. Good. Now, in terms of future trends with respect to the government on on UFOs, I know that there's been talk with um, our current president about the uh, space fleet. Right. You know, and any, do you have any particular um, information on that or speculation with lack of information? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, there's lots of buzz behind the scenes, I can tell you, among yeah. UFO researchers about, you know, what's happening right now, the whole disclosure movement. Uh, because it's apparent, once you study this subject, that our government does take this very seriously. Mm-hmm. They're putting a lot of money and attention to it. And uh, it is, UFOs are not going to go away. Just look at how many stars are out there. Yeah. <laughs> you can see that the idea of aliens is absolutely logical. And in fact, it would be much more unlikely that we're alone in the universe, given the number of stars. Sure. 
uh, from you know the Drake equation, mm-hmm. we know that aliens are out there. Yeah, and uh, it's pretty clear that uh, our government knows this and probably has proof. And not when I say proof, it's not just photographs or radars and things like this. It's the actual craft. It's mm-hmm. the actual alien bodies. Yeah. And if they have this, well, that's a real difficult project for them to have to sort of roll out to the public. And how are they going to do that? Uh, especially if there's the phenomena of abductions where people are being taken against their will and physically examined and so on. So it's a real problem for them, but they have really no choice to sort of disclose at some point because there are so many whistleblowers coming out right now Mm-hmm. Um, literally on their deathbed. I've talked to a number of them. Most UFO researchers have. Right. And uh, these are people, you know, high-level scientists who are saying, oh, yes, we do have this technology. Uh, so I think what we're seeing is our government is t- taking the steps that they need to take to sort of get us used to this subject and roll it out in a way that uh, won't cause a panic. You know, the, yeah. w- the War of the Worlds broadcast, you remember that? Mm-hmm. That did cause a panic. Exactly. Um, you know, people died over that. But that was a specifically written, you know, that was science fiction that was designed to sort of scare people. It was a very scary story. It was very scary, especially and, at that time when it was just on the radio and you didn't know right. what the environment was that was being broadcast. And he did it as though it was a news broadcast. So I think our government is a little bit concerned about that yeah. and how we would react. Um, I'm not as concerned because I think that was designed to really scare people and we could put out statements. Our government has right. basically said our, we have a presidents who have seen UFOs. We have senators who have seen UFOs. Governors, representatives. Governor Fife Symington of Arizona mm-hmm. said flat out he was a witness to the Phoenix Lights incident. We have Paul Hellyer, the defense minister of Canada, saying, oh, yeah, there's multiple alien races visiting our planet. So there's a lot of disclosure happening right now. And even one of the, the, um, I just made a note, I just saw this, um, I guess yesterday before, the physicist, um, his name, is it Michio Kaku? Right. He's just, um, he's now, he's a very reputable uh, physicist who's now, gone public talking about the whole um the truth or the the non-fiction aspect of ufos and ufology and and uh, other sentient races so it's getting a much more mainstream I mean, he's very much mainstream you know um respected right. physicist as a scientist you have, really have to work with physical evidence I remember he had a quote, like, if one abductee would just bring home a piece of alien hardware, all questions would be answered. Yeah. Well, I mean, easier said than done. For sure, yes. <laughs> uh, but there is evidence out there. I mean, we have now cases where people have apparent implants, and they're being removed and studied with, through scientific methods. We're able to bring science to the study of UFOs now, and we're making some incredible strides. Um, studying landing trace cases like the Delphos, Kansas case or the Socorro UFO landing in New Mexico or in Rendlesham Forest in England, there was a landing. These had radiation readings, which were mm. well above normal. Right. Uh, so it's not just eyewitness testimony by any means. Right. Now, s- scientists are taking this stuff very seriously, and I think we're going to s- continue to see that more and more. 
I'm guessing this is going to be taught in schools. And well, eventually we'll see that. At some point that. it's going to need to be. That's <laughs> right? For sure, yeah. I mean, this, is, this is definitely a scene where starting out as science fiction is absolutely evolving into science fact. It's incredible. It really yeah. is. The stuff we're used to think was just pure Star Trek mm -hmm. type of stuff is turning out to be real. And we can see it with our cell phones. That's very much like what we saw in the 1950s with the little uh, Star Trek communication devices. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Skyping and all, all the stuff we can do now, we would never have dreamt of back in the 50s. Right. And now it's, it's science fact. And I think we're going to continue to see stuff that's just going to be mind-blowing. And uh, science fiction is becoming reality, which is one of the functions of science fiction. That's right. I mean, Arthur C. Clarke <laughs> invented basically the satellite. Mm -hmm. um, he thought of it first. And for that matter, Jules Verne thought of the submarine. And it goes on and on. You can see this pattern with science fiction sort of predicting the growth of science. And UFOs are sort of the other end of it. Yeah. Um, sort of the light at the end of the tunnel, which if it's a true phenomena, and I believe it is, we're going to have a real wake-up call when these guys actually openly, officially disclose themselves. Uh, which I think is coming once the disclosure movement, once our government sort of comes clean as much as they can. Yeah, yeah. We're going, we're trending towards open official contact. Right. We're having these huge waves of sighting like Phoenix Lights, mm -hmm. uh, like the Hudson Valley wave in upstate New York. Yeah. A huge wave of sightings in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Gulf Breeze, Florida had a huge wave. We're seeing these huge waves across the world, which is sort of a way for the UFOs to sort of creep into our society a little bit at a time without, you know, taking over and without destroying our culture because we know what happens if an advanced culture, you know, lands in front of a primitive culture, sort of absorbs it. Yeah, and I think we definitely have our own track on that with our own experiences with that from, which is what even what Stephen Hawking talked about. Right. You know, like it was, you know, when... when when from England they came to North America and it wasn't so good for, you know, the, the future of um, the Native Americans wasn't so yeah, good. so UFOs landing right now might not be a good thing for us. Yeah, <laughs> it might be viewed with that same thing in mind, so that might inspire the immediate retaliatory actions on our part just so that doesn't happen. Right, I mean, we have a lot of problems just here internally among our own race. Yes. Uh, and I'm not sure we're quite ready for open official contact, but I do think it's coming. And yeah. it wouldn't surprise me a bit if it happens within our lifetime. Sure. You know, t 10 years, 20 years, uh, 30 years. Uh, it's yeah. going to happen yeah. either way. It's going to happen. So how can somebody that's listening to this right now, how can, how can they find out more about you? Uh, I do have a website. If you just Google my name, it should take you there. Uh, the actual address is prestondennett.weebly.com. Uh, and all my books are out there on my website and on Amazon and other online retailers. Yeah, this is a subject I take very, really seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, you do. I've been working at it for a long time. I think it has the potential to change society in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, it's not going to go away. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's time we face it. Yeah. It's time we face the fact that science fiction is now reality. Good. So thank you very much, Preston. And thank you for listening. In his introduction to Battlefield Earth, Elwin Hubbard wrote that science fiction, particularly in its golden age, had a mission, beating the drum to get man to the stars. The To the Stars podcast has been created to recognize and honor those who have dedicated themselves to this objective. 
Subscribe to the To The Stars podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you very much.